0: For September 23rd, 2015, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder.
1: American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. In 2035, over 80% of the world's energy will be supplied by fossil fuels.
0: We fail to see any scenario at oil above $60 a barrel in which U.S. production will not grow positively. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away, it's sustained, it's going to continue
1: to grow in 2015. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. The oil's still there, we know where it is, and we yeah. can get to it anytime we want. Right. I mean, I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what, we can yeah. still turn on our lights.
0: we got better distinguish between running out and hitting a peak in our ability to supply
1: the market, and that's what we're getting close to,
0: not running out. People talk about peak oil, that we're going to run out of oil, but actually, I think that in the United States, we've run into what we
1: might call peak demand. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, these have accumulated over long periods of geologic past, and we take them out of the ground in a matter of decades. Well, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, a unique event that has never happened before and the totality of human history, and we're unprepared for it. Americans have grown up with a vision of unlimited resources, of endless abundance, but in the
0: last decade, we've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now,
1: and it has hit us in the basic ingredients of industrial civilization, energy. And
0: really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem.
1: It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later, get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. By definition, we must move to renewable energy. How can one argue against that? Because to argue for it is to say that we will eventually run out of energy and die, or civilization will collapse. I have to be hopeful, because if
2: I'm not, then I lean toward nihilism, and I just say, screw it. Like, I really have to force myself to be positive about the solutions.
1: A coal miner's job is one of the toughest there is. It's like an old fella told me one time, once a miner, always a miner. If you work in the mines, the coal gets in your blood.
0: Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. In this show, we seek out knowledgeable, independent voices to explore the global energy markets and their ongoing transition away from fossil fuels and toward renewables designed to stimulate discussion about the difficult questions rather than reinforce preconceived answers. We will cover all forms of energy, grid power, transportation systems, macroeconomics, and more, including the latest news and research, policy developments, and market events. This is episode one. Today we're talking about the real war on coal, and we'll be speaking with Michael Grunwald, senior writer at Politico. He's also the author of The New New Deal, The Hidden Story of Change in the Obama Era, and The Swamp. The Everglades, Florida, and the politics of paradise. Since the EPA's final Clean Power Plan has been in the news recently, the casual observer might think that it is the main reason for our transition away from coal. But the transition away from coal is one of the biggest energy transition stories of our time, and it has actually been underway in various forms for decades. The Clean Power Plan will only accelerate it. U.S. electricity generation from coal has been declining since 2007, and there are many reasons for that, which I detailed in a 2012 article regulation, and the decline of coal power, which we'll link to in the show notes. Those reasons were not about carbon emissions. However, the current battle is about carbon emissions. Back in May of this year, Mike Grunwald wrote an excellent long-form piece titled Inside the War on Coal. Mike writes, the real war on coal is not primarily an Obama war or even a Washington war, it's a guerrilla war, and notes that it is not being fought at the EPA or the Supreme Court, and that the boots on the ground aren't banner-waving hippies in the street, but rather lawyers from the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign in state and local hearings, where utility commissions and other governing bodies debate individual coal plants. So let's bring Mike into the conversation. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show, Mike. Thanks for having me, Chris. So in your piece, you wrote that the U.S. had 523 coal-fired power plants when Beyond Coal began targeting them three years ago, but that 190 plants have been retired since then. That's 36% of the fleet. Why do you think Sierra Club has been so successful with its campaign?
2: Well, now they're up to 200 plants that have been scheduled for retirement. Wow. Yeah, it's been really remarkable. I think one reason for their success, of course, is that the Obama administration has been helpful with various regulations, with mercury, with soot, with smog. There are a lot of hammers for them to use. And another reason they've been successful is that their campaign has coincided with a spectacular transition in the clean energy economy, where you've seen solar get about 75% cheaper and wind maybe uh, 60% cheaper. That's made them much more cost competitive, they've been the boots on the ground in the war on coal. They're going to every single one of these obscure hearings where some public utility commission or state department of environmental quality is, is looking at any one of these 523 plants. And they've been very clever about their approach. They don't come in as as hippie enviros when they're in Oklahoma. You know, I went to some hearings in Oklahoma City where they did not mention the word environment or even the word wind or health. They were just completely talking about cost. And they've been able to make the case as regulations has made coal somewhat more expensive and these changes in wind and solar have just gotten so much cheaper they're able to make the case that just on pure economics that shutting down coal plants is better for ratepayers and that's been a tremendously powerful argument not only in places where environmental justice arguments hold some sway but in places like Georgia and Oklahoma And even Idaho, you're seeing some real changes.
0: Yeah, you know, I wanted to mention that in your piece, you detailed how Beyond Coal attorney Kristen Henry had demonstrated in court that Oklahoma Gas and Electric had massaged its economic models to make coal power look cheaper than it is and pollution controls more expensive than they are. And that in reality, new wind power is already cheaper for Oklahoma's than even coal plants without pollution controls. And so I think a straight economic argument like that without any tree-hugging elements resonates well, even in dark red states. And as you point out, we've seen similar things happening with the Green Tea Party in Georgia supporting solar over nuclear and coal plants. Do you think the straight economics is likely to play an even bigger role in pushing out coal than EPA regulations and legal fights, even if the next president is a Republican?
2: Well, I think it's all connected. EPA regulations are one reason that the economics have gotten so unfavorable for coal. Yeah. Coal, traditionally, its argument was, we may be dirty, but we're cheap. <laughs> right. um, and the reason they were so cheap was because they didn't have to clean up their dirtiness. Yeah. The more you make them clean up their mess, the less cheap they get. And then on the flip side, when you have wind at two cents, <laughs> that's really hard for anybody to compete with. And that's where you're seeing a lot of these states, they actually, it's written into their law, you know, originally by fossil fuel lobbyists that they have to go with the cheapest option. And increasingly, that's not coal.
0: That's right. You know, since the EPA released the final version of its clean power plan on August 3rd, there's been a lot of debate about how ambitious it is or isn't and what the likely outcomes of it will be. Given all the pressures, especially the economic ones, that coal is now under, how important do you think the EPA's new rules really are?
2: Well, I think I've been seen as maybe the leader of the, this is not a big deal contingent on the Clean Power Plan. And I will say that the draft Clean Power Plan was a joke. It would have had virtually no impact whatsoever. And even the final rule, You know, we've discussed how there's been this flurry of coal retirements Under the Clean Power Plan, that flurry will actually subside a bit. The rate of coal retirements through 2030 under the Clean Power Plan would actually abate. It would slow down.
0: Slower than it would have been without the Clean Power Plan.
2: Well, that's the question. For the draft, I really feel like it would have been much slower than without the Clean Power Plan. Interesting. The main change from the draft to the final is that the draft essentially said, and whether it was for political reasons or for legal reasons to try to make sure it passes muster with the Supreme Court, they basically said, well, if you're a fossil fuel state, if you're coal rich, we're essentially not going to ask very much of you or really pretty much anything. Kentucky, for example, would not have had to retire a single plant that it isn't already retiring to meet its targets under the draft rule. But the final rule completely flipped that and really put in some much tougher targets for states like Montana, West Virginia, Kentucky, North Dakota, places that have been historically dependent on on coal and other fossil fuels. So that now, even though the overall target they're saying, it, and that's increased as well, but it's still only 32% reduction from 2005 levels. So we're already halfway there.
0: Right.
2: But if The fossil fuel states have to do their part, and the states in the Northeast and California presumably are going to exceed their relatively modest targets, then you really could see the Clean Power Plan having a pretty good impact.
0: So on the political element, officials from 17 states that burn a lot of coal are preparing to sue the Obama administration now over the plan and block its implementation. Their claim is that the EPA is violating constitutional limits on federal power. That the Clean Air Act prohibits so-called double regulation on power plants whose other emissions are already regulated under another section of the law, and that the EPA lacks the authority to regulate the electric grid outside of the power plants. Meanwhile, other opponents, including Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky and Governor Scott Walker of Wisconsin, have indicated that their states might simply defy the EPA and just refuse to implement it. I mean, how much of a chance do these opponents really have of resisting the new rules?
2: Well, I think the first thing I have to say is that if there's a Republican president in 2016, you know, you're going to have to assume that there isn't going to be very vigorous enforcement of the Clean Power Plan if it survives. You also might see a couple new conservative Supreme Court justices which would be very bad news for the Clean Power Plan. Yeah. So a lot of this depends on politics. Mitch McConnell is in a bit of an odd position because they were saying even when Kentucky didn't have to shut down any additional power plants, they were describing the clean power plan as Armageddon it's war on coal it's right. killing the industry they cried so much wolf that now it's going to be a little bit difficult for them to say oh but this plan is even Armageddonier you know <laughs> they like are they gonna to have to go ballisticer <laughs> they're in a, they're in a kind of difficult political position having gone so crazy for no reason right. now they actually have some reason this is going to be tough for their coal industry but it's not clear how they raise their voices even higher. You know, legally, I think, you know, the Supreme Court did rule that the EPA has not just the authority, but the responsibility to regulate carbon.
0: An authority and a responsibility given to them by Congress when the EPA was created.
2: Yeah, that's right. So I think unless the makeup of the court changes, you've got to assume that that's not going to be a huge winning argument, the idea of where does EPA get off even thinking about carbon?
0: Well, and even with a different sort of composition in the Supreme Court, it would take some extremely tricky legal arguments to try to undo what had already been laid down.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the changing of the Supreme Court, I think then then all bets are off on all kinds of issues. Yeah. I do think the beyond the fence line argument from an energy wonk perspective, it's kind of a, a no-brainer, right? This idea that that energy efficiency and demand response, that these are kind of you know, megawatts have the same impact as megawatts and that you ought to be able to deal with the grid in a cleaner way and a cheaper way. But I'm not a lawyer and uh, I don't pretend to know how this Supreme Court is going to interpret how the law is written. And there is some pushing of boundaries on the Clean Power Plan, no question about that. So I wouldn't say that it's a done deal, but as you've mentioned in the past, these kind of regulations send a market signal. So it was interesting with the Mercury Rule which the Supreme Court actually did not strike down, but essentially set up for being struck down in a decision about a month ago, a decision that most of us thought was kind of crazy, basically saying that they didn't look at the cost of the regulation at the right time. You know, They looked at it later. But what was interesting about that decision is it hasn't really had much of an effect because most of these utilities have already kind of baked the mercury rule into their cake. They've already made these decisions. And I think Regardless of the bluster of some of these red state politicians, I think a lot of these utilities who face the prospect of EPA making these decisions for them in the future, if they don't start reacting now, I think they're going to start thinking about carbon rules and how to deal with that. So when they have to make a decision, when the ozone rule comes down or dealing with the mercury rule about whether they're going to install very expensive scrubbers, you know, when they're thinking, huh? Do we want to spend five hundred million dollars on technology that might turn out to be obsolete in a couple of years because of the carbon rule? We might have to shut this plant down anyway and strand the assets. Right. I think that's going to play into their decision. So, you know, all of this, you can tell I'm uh, whether you know, from the coal industry's perspective, I'm a big pessimist. From you know, the climate's perspective on this stuff, and when it comes to electricity, I'm really an optimist. I think a lot of these changes, you know, once. Coal got expensive and the government decided to deal with its mess. And once clean energy has gotten cheap, I think some of these changes are going to be really hard to reverse. And they really are in a transition where the political power of the coal industry is going to start to dwindle. The solar industry now employs more workers than the coal industry, which is yet another reason for politicians to start paying more attention to solar and wind and less to the coal industry. I just think. You know, there are real questions about how fast this transition is going to go,
0: but it's going. I couldn't agree more. I mean, especially with all of these coal companies going bankrupt, they're not going to have a lot of money to muster for political lobbying.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Or for their trade groups. <laughs> well,
0: yes, exactly. I mean, there are some important questions in my mind about the competition between natural gas and coal in US power generation, because as we all know, what's one of the main forces that's undercut coal has been how cheap natural gas has become with the U.S. shale gas revolution, but now it appears that U.S. shale gas production may have peaked in the U.S., at least for now, back in May, because the drillers are getting dragged down by crashing oil prices, and you know, one of the things I wonder about is if shale gas supply actually starts declining, and continues to decline and becomes more expensive than coal again, I I really wonder if coal will be able to reassert its dominance in US power generation.
2: I'm just very skeptical, you know, there's a lot of wind out there, and at two cents, you know, there are a lot of utilities that are gonna want to install it.
0: And it would be a a lower risk proposition for them.
2: I think that's right, and you know, also let's not assume that demand is gonna keep rising.
0: Let's not assume that because it hasn't been rising for years. Exactly.
2: It's barely been rising, even with the economy really growing pretty steadily. And I think there are good reasons to think that that could actually decrease. I mean, you see, like, Ikea is now only going to sell LEDs. I mean, you know, lighting is, you know, it's not... 40% 40% of our electricity use, but it's 15%. Yeah. And if we're going to have a whole scale transition to LEDs over the next few years, I mean, LEDs, we're talking about like an 80% reduction in their actual energy use. Right. So again, that's every one of those little percentage points is a percentage point that that comes off the coal industry, essentially. That's right. And so I do think that there is going to be questions about, you never know what the price of gas is going to be. And right now, The cost of storage for renewable energy is not really competitive, but that's going to keep coming down. And in most places, the amount of renewable energy on the grid is not really reached a level where it's going to cause huge problems with reliability without storage. So, you know, I don't know whether it's luck or not, but it seems to be working out pretty nicely where gas really is kind of filling in a gap right now as renewables get cheap and sort of start building up to a significant percentage of the grid. And meanwhile, you've got the Teslas of the world investing in storage. You've got some utilities starting to bring storage online. You've got this investment in demand response. You've got things happening in the energy efficiency world, I don't really see a big coal resurgence. And the bond market sure as heck don't either.
0: Those are all excellent points. And how we accommodate more renewable energy on the grid and what kind of a role storage and demand response and these other technologies has to play is one of the important questions that I'm looking to explore in this podcast.
2: Absolutely. Just to mention one more variable is the rise of electric vehicles, which even with oil at $40 a barrel, its incredible, you know, electric vehicles are really growing quite steadily.
0: It is remarkable.
2: You can see a point in the not-too-distant future where we start to think of those things as kind of car-shaped batteries right. that are sort of providing storage for the grid, that are making money for their owners as you become a little mini utility in your garage.
0: Sure, you become part of the dispatchable uh, electricity supply.
2: Yeah, I think it's exciting. It is. Especially since you know, we've been talking mostly about electricity. And there, I really feel like this transition is already unstoppable, while oil is still kind of a really good, cheap technology that hasn't yet been beaten.
0: Yeah. You know, on a slightly different subject, I really wonder how the people who live in coal country, you know, who might be a fourth generation or fifth generation coal miner in Illinois, for example, how those people feel about the transition that's going on. Um, how they feel about having seen the coal sector shedding jobs for decades due to all the reasons we've discussed plus of course increasing automation in the mining sector which has destroyed a lot of jobs. It just seems a horrible tragedy to me that the political leaders in coal states have simply tried to defend the status quo rather than embrace the new jobs being created in the transition. Wouldn't they be in a much better position today if they had done that? How do rank and file employees in the coal sector feel?
2: I think you you raise an excellent point, and I think it is sad. You see in, in his budget this year, President Obama put in a few billion dollars to help some of these coal communities make those transitions, and of course, you know, the Mitch McConnells of the world just say, you know, we don't want your welfare, just stop killing our industry, when for all the reasons we've been discussing, this is not just Obama killing their industry, their industry is dying. That said. I'm sure it was similar for the buggy whip industry <laughs> um, and and I think it's almost too much to expect these politicians to really take the kind of mature view when sort of Obama bashing is obviously excellent politics in a lot of these places. I do feel very badly for for these people who are dependent on the coal industry. I feel badly for people who have worked in coal mines because it really seems like horrible work.
0: Yeah. And you got to wonder, I mean, we've had generations of people in coal country who have suffered terrible health issues on account of the impact of working in coal. Likewise, we've had thousands and thousands of deaths a year from people who suffer from health problems because they live near a power plant that burns coal. I really wonder how those health issues play in these coal-dependent states in the near future.
2: Well, it's, it's hard. I, I spent some time Like when I went to that hearing in Oklahoma, you know, you saw there was this school superintendent from the town in rural Oklahoma where the coal plant came and testified and said, the utility gives money that helps keep our schools going. These places do provide jobs. And, of course, you and I can look at this from outside and say, like, well, wait a minute. Wind and solar now provide twice as many jobs as the coal industry. And a lot of the people doing those jobs are getting these horrible health problems from being exposed to these really toxic substances. But transitions are always hard. I wrote a book about change, <laughs> it's, it's hard. And although I'm I completely agree with you that ultimately these communities are gonna need to find a better way to employ their citizenry and hopefully a cleaner and less debilitating way, it doesn't surprise me that they're upset at jobs leaving their communities, and it doesn't surprise me that politicians are exploiting that disappointment.
0: Yeah. Well, and then, as you point out in your piece, after coal, oil is probably next. Sierra Club has signaled its intent to target oil next. But unlike electricity, where an electron generated by wind or solar is as easily substituted for an electron generated by coal. Liquid fuels are very hard to displace. I mean, you not only have to switch fuels, but you have to change out all the devices like cars and trucks that use them. Do you have any insight into what kinds of arguments or strategies Sierra Club might use to support a transition away from oil?
2: Well, I suspect they're putting a lot of hope in electric vehicles, which is one reason. To the extent we move towards electrification of our economy, all the more important that it's a green or even potentially zero emissions grid that's powering it, you know, biofuels, I think, have been a real disappointment.
0: Well, they have. And, you know, frankly, I'm, I'm not that excited yet about EVs. I mean, I certainly see the potential, but let's face it, it's, it's for several years now, uh, electric vehicles in the U.S. and worldwide have had a 0.4% market share. I mean, they're not even half a percent of the new vehicles being sold. So I really wonder, you know, how much traction does Sierra Club think they can get with this EV approach?
2: Well, look. I think they're uh, on the strategy side. What Bruce Millis was hinting at when he said we're meeting all these people in the utility industry and we're fighting them now, but someday we hope to work with them to fight big oil. What they're saying is that there's a clear kind of confluence of interests between utilities and the enviros when it comes to electric vehicles, right? Because electric vehicles are a huge growth opportunity for them to the extent that their business relies on selling electricity. You know the LEDs and high efficiency air conditioners and solar panels on people's roofs threaten to really destroy their business model but to the extent you plug your car into your wall and need juice to drive it around, that's real growth opportunity. And that's, you can see, that's also political opportunity where environmentalists and people who care about the climate can work with utilities to promote electric vehicles as an alternative to oil, providing the incentives that can maybe help make them grow a little bit, bit more. I've actually been kind of impressed when you think that in 2008, we had no electric vehicles. That's right. You know, we're not going to reach President Obama's goal of a million by 2017, but I think by 2020, that's certainly possible. And one thing about electric vehicles is the people who get them really seem to like them. And particularly as you see these new possibility of pricing schemes, whether they call it V2G, right? right. Where uh, you can imagine these, these schemes where you can really make money from your vehicle and let it function as a utility and sell power to the grid when, when the grid really needs power and suck power out of the grid when it's cheap. You can imagine that growing, if not exponentially, at least a lot faster than it's been growing. And $40 oil does not help the growth of electric vehicles.
0: That's true, but you do raise a good point that it certainly sweetens the pot for an EV owner to be able to actually have their investment in the vehicle generate a little income which is something that no gasoline vehicle is ever going to do
2: all of this is about making the economics work and another thing that you know my baby the stimulus really focused on trying to reduce the cost of electric vehicle batteries and that's been tremendously successful they've fallen about 50 percent since 2009 but again they're still too expensive they've got to get cheaper you know the bonuses from from even using your your car for demand response those are just going to make the economics better. And at some point, you hope that as I believe has happened with with renewable power, that it'll reach this kind of tipping point where there's sort of no turning back. I don't think that's quite happened yet for electric vehicles just because oil is so cheap and it's hard to turn over an automobile fleet. That happens slowly. Yeah. But again, the signs have been really good. Everybody likes their Teslas and people seem to like their little Leafs too.
0: I agree with all those points, actually. I mean, I've been very constructive on the future cost of storage devices, different sorts of batteries. Most people who don't follow the trade press or the science press probably aren't aware of how, just what enormous effort is going on in research universities all over the world on the storage problem. There's just amazing work being done, thousands of researchers working on this stuff. And I think it's very likely that we're going to have some exciting breakthroughs in the next five or 10 years in storage technologies.
2: That's right. And I think there are really excellent incentives on on both the grid side and on the vehicle side. With vehicles, right, you have these regulations that are just gonna to get tougher over the next few years with fuel efficiency standards. That's just gonna make it tougher and tougher for these fleets to make it. You're gonna see more and more reliance on electric vehicles from the automakers. And then for the grid, as we've discussed, you can see how how storage could just be the holy grail. Gosh, if you can do cheap storage, then who needs these big, expensive, dangerous plants that don't just pollute but are a headache to run and cause all kinds of problems?
0: Exactly. And as you point out, there will come a tipping point where it just doesn't make sense to buy a gasoline-burning vehicle anymore. And once you've passed that, there really won't be any going back.
2: I think it's been really disappointing on the biofuel side where for these first generation biofuels are just an environmental and global poverty and hunger disaster where, you know, they're sort of directly contributing to the destruction of the rainforest. They're just bad in every way. They raise the price of food. It's just awful, awful, awful. You know, I had really high hopes for some of these advanced biofuels you know, that you don't need all this land and you can maybe make in your beer fermenter. But uh looks like that's going to take a while.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I was actually always very skeptical about that because I had looked at some of the research on the energy return on investment for these types of fuels, and it was always too low. It was too low for the so-called easy stuff, making ethanol from something like corn or sugar beets even it's even lower for cellulosic ethanol, so.
2: Right, right. I think the hope is that some of this algae stuff, but again, you, I think you've provided an excellent example of why it's actually good to know stuff about science like you do, rather than be a journalistic dilettante like I am.
0: <laughs> well, as journalistic dilettantes go, Mike, you've been a wonderful asset to the whole question, and, and I really appreciated your piece on the war on coal. I mean, I've been saying for years that I wanted to get away from the fake war on coal that the Republicans talked about and get to a real war on coal. And I think I think we're there now.
2: <laughs> you know, it's really dirty stuff. <laughs> and uh, It is. But it doesn't go away on its own. And that was one of the really interesting things about going out and doing that story yeah. was that even though there are really good arguments, you know, there's a really good case against coal right now, somebody's still got to make it. And that's why I might sort of hats off to those Sierra Club guys who on many things, I'm sure we don't see eye to eye, but on cold, they're doing the work. They're not just like waving the banners. They're putting on the suit and tie and, or, you know, the pantsuit as it was in Kristen's case. And, uh, they're getting out there and taking the fight to these obscure commissions.
0: Yeah, they are. Well, Mike, listen, I really appreciate you taking some time to talk with us today. This has been a really interesting conversation and we'll have you back another time.
2: I really appreciate it, Chris. You're doing great work.
0: Okay. Thanks a bunch. Thank you. That was Michael Grunwald of Politico magazine talking about the war on coal. And if you haven't read his excellent piece on Politico entitled Inside the War on Coal, I highly recommend it. We'll link to that in the show notes. Mike raises some really useful points, I think, for those interested in the pace and direction of energy transition. As battery technologies improve and the cost of EVs comes down, I think we're going to see a significant transfer of energy demand from oil to the power grid and it does seem likely that we're going to be able to generate much of that additional power using renewables, and not using coal. This is an important point to realize because there's been a lot of research published suggesting that a switch to EVs would not help reduce emissions much, because the electricity they run on would largely be generated by a coal-powered grid. But those studies are modeling an older generation mix, and assuming that coal would remain dominant for decades to come. In fact, coal's share of power generation in the U.S. has fallen from 50% a decade ago to around 36% this year. Indeed, coal has been under increasing pressure for a very long time, thanks mainly to market competition and concerns about human and environmental health. A brief review of that history is in order. Limits on coal really began with the passage of the Clean Air Act in 1963, which was signed into law by President Johnson. When the Environmental Protection Agency was created in 1970 under President Nixon, it was given authority to regulate air pollutants, and those regulations caused power generation to begin drifting away from coal and toward natural gas. Subsequent amendments in the 1970s and 1990 increased the authority of the federal government, which implemented additional restrictions designed to stop acid rain. Those restrictions caused power producers to begin switching away from higher sulfur grades of coal from Appalachia and the Illinois Basin, which we had used for over a century, to lower sulfur grades of coal like that from the Powder River Basin in Wyoming. But sulfur aside, it is also true that the old coal mines of Appalachia have also simply been getting mined out, with the best ores mined long ago. What is left has become increasingly harder to get at and more expensive, a theme that we will revisit repeatedly on this show. Still, coal power generation kept on growing until the shale gas revolution hit in 2007. It's been falling ever since because gas just became cheaper than coal for generating electricity. Another recent blow against coal power is simply the age of the power plants. Up until a few years ago, nearly three-quarters of our coal-fired capacity was at least 30 years old, and many of the plants were using outdated, inefficient technology. Those were the first ones to be retired in recent years, but within 20 years, nearly all of our existing coal plants will need to be replaced. So it simply hasn't made sense to build new ones, not when gas is still cheaper, and wind and solar are growing quickly and promising to become cheaper than gas or coal. Additional new pressures on coal include falling demand from China, whose economy is beginning to mature after decades of torrid coal-powered growth and a strengthening U.S. dollar. The major U.S. coal companies have been essentially wiped out by these global macroeconomic forces, losing over 98% of their market value since 2011, with many having recently been forced into bankruptcy. Another factor working against coal is that coal plants, like other so-called base load generators, like to operate near full steam most of the time and don't like to be cranked up and down. So as more variable renewable power comes onto the grid, coal plants will find it difficult to operate economically. So we should understand that greenhouse gas regulations are a fairly recent threat to coal and more of a final straw than the main reason for its demise.
1: I hope when I'm gone and the ages shall roll my body will blacken and turn into cold. Then I'll look from the door Of my heavenly home And pity the miner Digging my bones Where it's dark as a dungeon And damp as the dew Where dangers double And pleasures are few Where the rain never falls and the sun never shines, it's dark as a dungeon way down in the mines.
0: And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Three writers for The Guardian who describe themselves as pro-nuclear environmentalists have called for the UK government to scrap the Hinkley Sea nuclear plant calling it overpriced, overcomplicated, and overdue. Its costs have quadrupled from the initial estimate, and its startup date has been pushed back from 2017 to 2023, which in itself now seems doubtful. None of this should surprise anyone who's paid attention to the progress of new nuclear plants in the OECD. The only surprising thing about it is that the project backers were able to secure such a sweetheart deal in the first place. They extracted from the government a price guarantee of 92.5 pounds sterling per megawatt hour for the electricity it produces, index-linked for 35 years, which is more than twice the current wholesale cost of grid power and well above the cost of new solar projects. Item 2. A new analysis from EIA found that debt is eating up an ever-larger share of shale drillers' cash flow. For the year from July 2014 through June 2015, U.S. companies with onshore shale operations spent 83% of their operating cash just to service debt. Since oil prices crashed, many of these operators have had to refinance and expand their debt, not unlike someone who uses one credit card to pay off another. Shale promoters have frequently said this year that because shale production didn't fall much, it was proof that drillers were resilient and able to be profitable at much lower prices than previously believed. But the dirty little secret was that maintaining their production required the issuance of vast amounts of debt and equity. Item 3. A bill lifting the ban on exports of U.S. crude oil has passed the House, but there are three reasons to believe that it will be a hollow victory for U.S. producers. First, the Senate and President are unlikely to support the move. Second, there is no economic case for exporting U.S. crude when the U.S. benchmark price, WTI, is less than $3 under the European benchmark price, Brent. Historically, before the U.S. tight oil boom got underway, Brent was cheaper than WTI, and now we know the U.S. production has been declining since April, with most forecasters projecting that it will continue to decline through 2016. If U.S. production doesn't pick back up again, it's likely that the Brent WTI spread will remain too low, if not negative, to make U.S. exports economically viable. And third, there are reports that U.S. traders are already scrambling for light-sweet crude cargoes, indicating that the decline in U.S. production is hurting supplies to refiners, and suggesting that U.S. imports of crude will be picking back up again. Item 4. The Federal Reserve left its key interest rate unchanged in its latest meeting, citing global economic weakness and low inflation. This is what I expected, contra the widespread belief that they would raise rates in September, and I think it was the right decision. It's been clear to me since June that commodity demand has been extremely weak and that with all commodities now priced at the recessionary lows of 2009, the global economy is struggling to achieve any real growth against a deflationary undertow that has been in place for at least a decade. It was temporarily masked by central bank interventions and other data games, but I think many people are beginning to realize that it never went away. It has been my belief for many years now that we are indeed past the era of strong economic growth, which was caused by the loss of cheap and abundant fossil fuels. What this means for transition is hard to say. If the world is indeed falling into the deflationary vortex, it will mean that we'll burn less fossil fuels than projected. At the same time, since wind and solar are now becoming cheaper than fossil fuels, It would likely mean that the share of renewables will grow faster than expected. But on the other hand, it will also mean that fossil fuels stay cheaper than anyone expected. So as the deflationary trend becomes integrated into economic forecasts, there's a risk that fossil fuel use will creep up when people expect it to keep falling, and supply will fall short of demand, setting off another price spike. And if economic activity is slowing down, it could slow the deployment of renewables and efficiency, effectively acting as a headwind against energy transition it could become increasingly difficult to fund the kinds of adaptation and mitigation measures we've been counting on to address the problem of climate change. So it could leave the world more exposed to climate change than is generally believed. Which brings us to our final item. A recent study, which was widely covered in the news with breathless clickbait headlines, found that if all known reserves of fossil fuels were burned, it would completely melt the ice sheet of Antarctica. But here's the good news. It's an absurd scenario oil, gas, and coal are all struggling with rising costs and falling prices, while renewables are already chasing coal off the grid and continuing to get even cheaper. And then there is that pesky deflationary vortex which would further weaken demand for fossil fuels. There is no defensible economic scenario under which the world would burn all technically recoverable resources of fossil fuels. So relax. The Antarctic ice sheet is the least of our worries. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com, and follow us on Twitter at transitionshow. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.